Coming up on Plane Crazy Down Under, Grants Across the Ditch in New Zealand, speaking with Jerry and Jan Chisholm at their hangar home on Bridge Park Aerodrome. So Boeing said, well, what about if we give you two 737s? Can you use those in Alaska? And the answer was yes. So I got to upgrade into the 737s. So I thought, well, actually, it's my money. It's my life. The hell with it. I'll go and have a trial flight. And I fell in love with it. And we present part two of our chat with iconic aviation businessman, Steve Paget, OAM. But I've got to say, it was a lot easier in those days. There wasn't the red tape and bureaucracy that goes on today. It's our first show for 2024 and a big year ahead as we get plain crazy. We sure are. Thank you, Terry Daniel. And welcome, folks, back to Playing Crazy Down Under, episode 145, it turns out, of the show that uh, talks about aviation here in the great southern land. I'm Steve Fisher and Grant McHeron. Who thought we would have been saying hello to everybody this many years down the track in 2024? I know, right? We started in 2009. Yeah, okay, we took a little bit of a break because life got in the way. Much Just like a little break. Well, much like for many of us trying to learn how to fly aircraft, life gets in the way, right? But uh, we're back. Tell me, tell me about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it got in your way a hell of a lot more than mine, I think. But um, in a really wake up way. But mate, yeah, it it's uh, 2024. Uh, this is our 14th episode of the second series, and as you said, 145th episode all up of the PCDU. Go us. Yeah, and it's great to be back. I tell you what, um, this year's you know, we're looking at some really interesting things in aviation coming up this year. Lots of news around the place, uh, both here and internationally. Particularly, you've been following certain airliner stories lately, but I don't think we really need to touch on that, do we? But uh, everyone else, anyway. Has. Yeah, there's some uh, there's some good air shows coming up this year. There's some big announcements coming up uh, in the business side of aviation, which we're really looking forward to uh, exploring as time goes on. And uh, I'm sure we'll have another year of great storytelling. You know, uh, there's so many great stories uh, that we really love telling uh, around the aviation industry in this part of the world. And uh, when we say this part of the world, we also like to include New Zealand. We've had a lot of uh, Kiwi content on the show over the years, and uh, this show, uh, as we start off for this uh, this year, is no exception. Grant, you've been travelling. I certainly have, mate. It was last year. Wound up in New Zealand for family and business kind of reasons and uh, was able to catch up with uh, Jerry and Jan Chisholm over at their hangar home, an absolutely incredible hangar home, I might point out. I was so jealous at uh, Bridge Par, the historic Bridge Par Aerodrome, just outside of Hastings, which is near Napier in the North Island of New Zealand on the uh, on the yeah, right-hand side, the East Coast. Uh, look it up on Google Maps. You'll find it. it's Napier, New Zealand, just down southwest from there is Hastings, and just near there is Bridge Par, spelt P-A. And uh, yeah, it was absolutely fantastic to get to meet uh, Jan and Jerry, and they have a 1929 Gypsy Moth that Jan's father actually flew from the UK to Sydney, shipped over to Auckland, and then flew down to Bridge Par. So we start off by talking with Jerry about his experiences. He was a bush pilot in Alaska and actually was bush pilot flying 737s at one point, but he's got time flying civilian Hercules and also the MD-11. So he's got some good stories to tell. And then talk to Jan about her father's flight, bringing that gypsy moth down. It's just amazing. 
You know, Grant, uh, interesting talking about bush flying in Alaska and all that part of the world. Uh, I, I do note with interest uh, one of my favourite shows, Ice Pilots, from the day. I, I noticed the Buffalo Airways. I know it's in Canada, but I think they're doing a bit of bush flying with a 737 that, that they've upgraded to recently. You know, that would be a good story to follow as well. But uh, it, always, it always seems that uh, that part of the world encourages that kind of uh, flying adventure. Yeah, well, he, uh, as you'll hear, Jerry has some uh, interesting tales about uh, – getting in and out of very short strips in a gravel-kitted 737, but back in the 200 series days, so way before the current problems, back when the 737 was really cool. I probably can't say that, but too late. Anyhow, <laughs> uh, moving right along. Oh, I know it gets pretty cool with the door open, I hear. <laughs> oh, so <laughs> moving on. Oh, do I have, sorry, was that the lawyers already sharpening their pencils? So, dude, <laughs> um, just, just to let you know, there's actually more content that I recorded with Jan and Jerry uh, I've split it up into parts because I also work with our friend Dave Homewood over in New Zealand and we produce Warbird Radio Down Under for the Warbird Radio Network. And uh, Dave and I used to work together on Warbird Radio Live, which we actually recorded live and play, and it was streamed live over in the US on the Warbird Radio Network. These days, Warbird Radio is doing pre-recorded stuff. And so it's back. It's happening. Warbirdradio.com. You'll hear a couple that we've already done individually or together, and uh, this one will probably be coming out, I'd say, in a month. I'm not sure what the release cycle is going to be, but if you want to hear more, uh, we've got Jan talking about one of the other aircraft in their hangar, and we've got Jerry talking about flying the P-51 Mustang, the uh, B-25 Mitchell, uh, which he flew as a warbird uh, doing uh, firebombing, and also his Booker Jungmann German biplane. So classic stuff. Uh, head on over to warbirdradio.com. You want to be subscribed to that anyhow, but the Warbird Radio Down Under segment, you'll hear more about Jan and Jerry there. Fantastic. Well, a couple of great interviews there, which we'll get into in just a sec. And uh, also in this episode, we'll be doing part two of our uh, three-part series talking to uh, Australian aviation business legend, really, uh, Steve Paget, OEM. So, Grant, it's 2024. There's lots to talk about in aviation. Looking forward to getting into it. And uh, you know what? Let's do that right now. Jerry Chisholm, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Quite well, thanks. Fantastic. Well, Jerry, we're standing here in your hangar, which is also your home, and the rain is falling. So, no flying, but a great time to have a chat. Mate, you started off in Alaska. What got you into flying up there? Uh, my father was always a, a private pilot, even before World War II. Uh, but uh, when he joined up, when he joined up the military or went to join the military, they found out he was colorblind. So that put him out to be a pilot. Uh, but he was uh, well, a rated private pilot before then. And then when I came along uh, and after the war, he, was, uh, he bought a surplus military airplane, uh, PT-26, which the Canadians called the Cornell. And... Uh, had it all painted up uh, civilian colors. And as I understand it, uh, when I was quite young, I used to fly around on his lap. The first thing I remember in my whole life was when he took me up in an air coupe and he did a loop. Wow. And I was amazed. Uh, this was when I was four years old. I was amazed I could look up and see the ground and look down to see the sky. And so he always had private airplanes. Uh, that uh, worked in with his business as a power line construction 
company. And as his company got more successful, he got into better airplanes. And he was, he and his, uh, and my uncles, his brother and brother-in-law, uh, always were very keen sportsmen, hunters, and fishermen. So he always had uh, the appropriate airplanes in Alaska to service that need. Uh, like I say, as uh, time went on, he kept upgrading airplanes and getting into fast twins. And, and then at some point in his career, uh, we took one of our airplanes down south after I had uh, my commercial license. We took it uh, to Oklahoma, Cessna 180, to get an engine overhaul. And on the way back, we came through Northern California, and we saw an ad uh, for cheap helicopter training in an old Bell 47D1. And so we stayed there about a week, and we each got about uh, seven hours of duel. I guess I should mention we were pretty competitive when uh, when we were f uh, uh, flying the 180. It'd be I'd do a leg, and we'd rate each other's uh, landings, and he'd do a leg, and we'd rate to give a rating to the landings. So we uh, we got about seven hours in uh, this. Uh, Bell D1, and uh, one night the, the instructor was talking to both of us, and to me, he said, uh, you're doing real well. If, uh, if it goes that well tomorrow, you probably solo. Uh, later that night, my dad decided we had to get back to Alaska <laughs> <laughs> because he didn't want, apparently he didn't think that it was appropriate for me to solo before he soloed. <laughs> But he got the bug, the helicopter bug, and stayed, uh, uh, got into helicopters as they applied to uh, building power lines. That was a new part of the industry to use helicopters to set power poles and set big, uh, big towers. And so he bought a, um, a Hughes helicopter that advertised, we'll teach you to fly the helicopter if you buy it. Mm-hmm. So that started him out in his helicopter uh, career uh, that he stayed in for the, for the last half of his career and got more than 15,000 hours of helicopter time. Meanwhile, my commercial career was also uh, extending and getting into bigger airplanes and big cargo airplanes in Alaska. Uh, the pipeline came along in the 70s. And I got upgraded into Hercules, oh, wow. commercial Hercules. So I flew those for 15 years and got over 10,000 hours in the, in the Hercs uh, with a company uh, that did incredibly well. Uh, at one time, our company based out of Fairbanks had uh, 15 Hercules. Each Herc was doing about five trips a day to the North Slope for, uh, at that time, $5,000 a trip. And the money was coming in by the bucketsfuls. Uh, and the uh, CEO of the company decided in order to use up some of that money that he would buy a 767, the launch customer for a 767 that hadn't been flown yet. Because he thought that uh, by the time they came out, that uh, they'd be a super popular airplane and it would be a good investment. So 
couple of years, well, a few years later, the 7-6 came out and Boeing said, uh, what are we going to do with your airplane? And he says, we can't use it in Alaska. And in fact, they weren't that popular an airplane. Uh, so Boeing said, well, what about if we give you two 737s? Can you use those in Alaska? And the answer was yes. So I got to upgrade into the 737s. Wow. Uh, then uh, at, uh, early on in the game, we weren't paid very well uh, early in the Herc program. And the boss said, if, if we make it through this tough times and if, if we uh, are successful, he says, I'll take care of you guys. So I'll make sure that you're, you're well remunerated. So at a certain point, after a couple, two or three years in the 737, uh, special uh, gravel kit airplanes, I went to the boss and said, you said that you'd take care of us. And everybody's being poorly paid, uh, especially co-pilots are not even on a living wage. And so we're going to form a union. And so we did, and uh, took a couple of years uh, before it came time for the big strike in order to get the uh, co-pilot pay up to a livable wage. And, uh, of course, the, the big uh, tourist season in Alaska starts June 1st. So that's the day of the strike. And uh, I was uh, president of the union and chief negotiator, and at the... 11th hour before the start of the strike, he took the other negotiating team and he says, I'll talk to you, but I won't talk to Jerry Chisholm. And they settled the strike in the favor of the union. But he said, there's only one thing, Jerry Chisholm has to go. So I got fired and he told me at that time, he says, I'll make sure you never get a job in America again in the airlines. So I went overseas. So that took me to uh, Indonesia to fly for an airline that got some new 737s. Which airline was that? It was Airfast Indonesia. Okay. And they served the largest um, copper mine in the world out in Irian Jaya, which is the uh, Indonesian half of New Guinea. That uh, At that copper mine, they employed 30,000 people. And we had at least one airplane jet a day go in there and, and move their people back and forth. Uh, but we didn't have uh, our own heavy maintenance facility. So we brought the airplanes to Christchurch. That's a long way to come for maintenance. It is. Uh, to uh, For Air New Zealand to do the heavy maintenance checks, which was about every 1,500 hours on the airplanes. And that would put an airplane in Christchurch for at least a week. And I'd rent a car and I'd go out and meet people. And that's where I met my wife, Jan, wow. I went to, I had some other friends that, uh, that had a, a business in Wanaka and he had a, a tiger and a chipmunk. And he says, we're going down to this uh, tiger moth club meeting in uh, Mandeville down near the south, bottom of the South Island at, near Gore. So I took the chipmunk down. He took the tiger, which I had been using. And he introduced me to Jan. Uh, she had brought a tiger all the way from Hawke's Bay on the North Island to compete. And I was uh, hugely impressed that she, I think, won the non-instrument circuit and the landing spot landing competition. 
uh, and maybe a few other of the competitions. So I was quite impressed. Let's see, after uh, at a certain point, I finished up with the job in, uh, in Indonesia and later I came to have a job with uh, Eva Air mm-hmm. uh, flying MD-11s out of uh, Taipei worldwide, including flights into Auckland. And so the time off schedule was, was, uh, was quite good and free travel on the airline anywhere we wanted. So I continually visited Jan and we uh, went skiing together and such and, and flying uh, Tiger Moth Club fly-ins. I always uh, found it easy to uh, find a Tiger Moth to fly <laughs> to these various fly-ins. Let's see what happened then. Oh, then I, uh, at a certain point, I uh, retired from Eva Air and the MD-11 and moved out of Anchorage, was my home of record, and moved to New Zealand. And that's why we have this hangar house on uh, Hastings Airport where we keep uh, uh, our gypsy moth. It's a beautiful aircraft. Yeah, it's, we're right here by it, and we have uh, the history of it on the wall here. It's uh, a family airplane in the respect that uh, Jan's dad flew it from England to Sydney in 1934. And then it was shipped across the Tasman, and her dad flew it here uh, until 1939 or 40 when the government uh, grabbed all of the civil airplanes. They thought they might need it for training. Mm -hmm. Uh, It didn't get much use for training during the war because there were all the new Tiger Moths available, which is a a more suitable airplane for training pilots. Then after the war, it was uh, uh, put back on the market and owned by a series of different airlines and flying organizations until it became pretty poor shape in about the 1960s, I think. And then the hulk of it was uh, taken up by a man named Lee Middleton that was a woodworking class teacher uh, in, in school. And in his spare time in the next 30 years, he replaced all of the wood in the airplane. All of the wood? All of the wood. Wow. Uh, and rebuilt it uh, to like new condition. When we first talked to him about it, we said, of course, if you ever sell this airplane, because of the history and Jan's dad is the one that brought it here, uh, we'd like first choice at it. He said, well, I'm going to have this airplane until I die. And he was about 60 then, and we figured he'd live to be 100. But in fact, uh, within about 10 years after that, he got uh, arthritis, and it takes a little bit of agility to get in and out. And so he sold it to us. And so it's here in our hangar. We, when we have uh, other airplanes uh, that need to be in the hangar, we fold the wings, and it sits right along one side of the hangar. And at times in this hangar, we've had six airplanes. Oh, wow. But as it is right now, uh, we only have two airplanes in here. And it, uh, so we... We have the wings uh, extended. It's similar to a 
an English sports car in that it requires tinkering with all the time. <laughs> it always has something to do. Yeah. Yeah. We like messing about with airplanes. <laughs> yeah. I, I noticed the collection of uh, tools, gear, dope, fabric, everything. Mm -hmm. There's there always something to do. So uh, coming back to your aviation career, uh, how long have you been in New Zealand? Well, it uh, started coming when I first met Jan. It was about 25 years ago. But then after I retired from the, from the EVA Air, it's been about 15 years. Okay. Now, you, you were flying smaller aircraft at first, then you were on to, as you said, the Hercules, mm -hmm. and then the MD-11, mm -hmm. and the 737, of course. So how did you find flying the Hercules, the 73, and the MD-11? Were there any particular quirks about any of them that stand out? The Herc... Is just like a big super cub, big fat wing, uh, instant lift. Uh, the, the big powerful propellers uh, blow over about uh, sixty percent of the wingspan onto big flaps, and it's an airplane. It's real easy to fly. Uh, hydraulically boosted controls, and it's uh, one of my favorites in that it always will do more than you need for it to do, even in uh, tight situations. It'll, it'll perform beyond your expectations and get you out of trouble. So it's one of my favorites in that respect. The opposite of that is the uh, MD-11. The DC-10, precursor of the MD-11, uh, was very popular here in New Zealand. And all the pilots that I've ever talked to that flew the DC-10 thought it was a great airplane. But uh, in the commercial big airplane market, it, uh, because it had three engines, uh, people thought that it should do uh, at least 75% of what a 747 would do. But it didn't quite do it. So uh, after uh, Douglas was uh, bought by McDonnell uh, and turned into McDonnell Douglas, the fighter people from McDonnell Douglas decided they were going to make a super DC-10. Mm. So they stretched the airplane. They've got more wingspan, bigger engines, and it, uh, it just wasn't designed for the work that they were trying to get out of it. I was hugely disappointed and shocked, in fact, that um, each airplane that Eva had, and they had about a dozen of them, each airplane had its own decrement schedule of how far it wouldn't do what the book said it would do oh, wow. when you were doing flight plans. You could go through a flight plan. You, could, you knew what it, how much fuel it took for takeoff and climb and cruise, and you go through these plans. And one of the worst ones uh, had to apply a 5.5% decrement to those figures. Jeez. But they that's how they sold airplanes. One of the best ones only had a 2.5% decrement. <laughs> so it just wasn't very commercially viable. And little by little, and it didn't have the range either. Mm. Uh, little by little, uh, Eva converted all their passenger models into freighters. Yeah. And they figured freight wouldn't complain if they had to stop in Anchorage yeah. for fuel. Yeah. Well, they, they were, a lot of them still uh, flying with uh, FedEx. I oh, yeah. yeah. Hugely popular as a freight airplane. Yeah. Because, because it doesn't have the range, but uh, the freight doesn't complain. Mm. 
yeah, and you've you already you've probably got freight for Anchorage anyhow. So you uh, well yeah, a little out. bit of that. Yeah. And it's uh, uh, generally uh, each big airplane has a, an appropriate simulator for training. And uh, in every case of a Boeing simulator, they say, uh, even though they see it seems to fly quite nicely, they say, well, don't worry. When you get in the real airplane, it flies even better. Well, in the MD-11 simulator, <laughs> the real airplane flew just as badly as the simulator. <laughs> oh, no. It's like the controls aren't hooked up to real solid cables. It's, it's like they're hooked up to bungees or something. Oh, wow. it's, uh, it's just a real pig to fly. How'd you find that compared to, like, which models of the 737 were you flying? Uh, well, the uh, 200, 300, and 400. Yep. But the 200 was my favorite. We had a lot of, uh, we had the shortest uh, uh, airfield that we operated into in the world at 3,900 feet long. Wow. Gravel and snow <laughs> at Dutch Harbor. And that was, uh, that was like, like bush flying a, yeah. a jet. It was a... It was a lot of fun. Wow. Uh, any particular memorable stories that you got from? Well, not really. It's uh, but the statute the, of limitations has passed. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, no, it was just uh, it was just just interesting. Uh, sometimes uh, the weather at Dutch Harbor would be bad for a week, and they wouldn't have any airplanes there, and the station manager would. Uh, uh, be a little bit uh, uh, loose with the truth on on what the c runway condition was. Yeah, he'd 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 tell us that the uh, even though it's uh, snow and ice and slush, he said I've been out there with my with my pickup and and it's the conditions are good. Well, it's uh, it turned out to be not quite so good. But the 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 two hundred had the uh, really good reverse buckets. Mm -hmm. They were those reverse buckets were so good that uh, you could back it up and taxi. Wow. You can even taxi uphill backwards. Oh wow! Because the reverse was so efficient. Yeah. So we needed needed that on occasion <laughs> when when it was uh, very slick ice runways. So now that you've come to New Zealand, you fly you've flown more aircraft than. The Gypsy and Tigers and mm -hmm. the Chipmunk that you've already mentioned. Mm -hmm. I understand you've done some flying down all around Hood Aerodrome at Master. Oh, a little bit, yeah. Yeah, I got to got to fly the Fokker triplanes and the Fokker D seven. My favorite of all was the uh, uh, SE five. Why yeah. Uh The early airplanes, especially the the rotary powered airplanes, rotary engine like the Camel mm -hmm. and such. Had a also a nasty gyroscope in the front that uh, foiled all, a lot all of that people. Mass spinning around the yeah. crankshaft. It made them uh, very tricky, and apparently, it's uh, said that uh, killed more people in training than they did in combat. Uh, but by the time the uh, SE five came along with the uh, various V eight engines, uh, it flies like a modern biplane, wow. if you can call it a biplane modern. Uh, we uh, a modern biplane is like, uh, for instance, the 1930s airplanes, like a Waco, for mm -hmm. instance. Yeah. And the SE5 flies very similar. It's just a real sweet airplane. Nice, solid, but also nimble. And oh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, so do you still go down to Hood and fly down there occasionally? Uh, no. Uh, that's, um, that's all in the past. Uh, 
on occasion, well, I do some, I have done some flying since then with uh, some of the World War One replicas at uh, Omaka Aerodrome. Yeah. And, and I do test flying of those type of things. Cool. That's a lot of fun. Okay. Well, speaking of World War II aircraft, uh, old aircraft, biplanes, et cetera, we started talking just before about uh, the beautiful gypsy moth. So the gypsy moth was the precursor to the tiger moth. Yes, exactly. It's it, uh, pretty much started out light aviation in England. And uh, when it came time to for the military to use it as a trainer, which they did, they decided that the fuel tank right above the front cockpit was uh, a hindrance uh, to get in to allow the instructor to uh, get in and out of or in in the event of a dire emergency in order to bail out of. Mm. And so uh, de Havilland moved the fuel tank and the front wing, uh, top wing uh, attach point forward of the front cockpit. And in order to maintain the center of gravity where it should be, then they had to, then they swept back the wings in order to take care of that problem and made the tiger moth in, I think the first tiger flew in about 1931. Uh, and you were saying it's got, the other day, you were saying it's got the same wing as the gypsy. They just canted it and put an extension in there. Yeah, they front. used all the, the same parts uh, of, of the gypsy uh, for the tiger that they could, uh, including the wing attach points. Uh, in order to sweep back the wings, I think they cut the uh, rear spars uh, four and a half inches uh, so that the wings swept back to maintain the center of gravity. Which, of course, means the ribs are no longer parallel with the airstream. We thought that uh, when this flew, that it would be faster than Tiger's. But by the time they had, uh, when uh, another thing they wanted for the Tiger was uh, better visibility out the front, so they inverted the engine, mm. sloped the, the nose down away from the, from the pilots uh, for better visibility. And they increased the bore of the engine another four millimeter uh, to get an extra 10 horsepower for the Tiger. And so, in fact, with the, the same pitch prop on both airplanes, the Gypsy or the Tiger, at the same RPM, they fly at the same speed. Wow. Okay, so that makes it quite good for them to be in formation or traveling yeah, alongside each other. Yep. And, and how does she fly? It flies a little better than a Tiger Moth. It's got a little more lift. It uh, lands and take off, takes off almost five miles per hour slower. And, and so lands a little bit shorter, even though it has no brakes. Right. Now the tail skid bites into the grass a little bit and uh, gets in. We've got a little area out in front of our hangar here that we use for takeoff and landing that's uh, about 200 meters. And it gets in and out of that quite nicely wow. uh, with, without problems. Yeah, we love it. And the fact that the wings fold for, for – uh, Storage mm. means that we, when when we travel across country, very seldom are left out in the rain. <laughs> uh, because even uh, when anybody has a hangar, uh, we show them that uh, we own, we can fold the wings and slide along one hangar wall, and we almost always get 
inside for the hangar <laughs> where the tigers are all parked outside. <laughs> Another good reason for a gypsy. Yeah. Well, Jerry, thank you very much for coming on the show. My pleasure. Jan White, welcome to the show. Hi, Grant. <laughs> Great to have have this opportunity. Thank you so much for allowing me to come to the house that you and Jerry have here on Bridge Park Aerodrome and the lo- wonderful hangar that we're standing in as the rain falls on the roof. Yeah, well, it's a bit of a dream, really. And um, people so often say, you still live at Bridge Park? And I just, we both say, well, they'll take us out of here in our boxes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, Surrounded by aviation, which is wonderful in, in, in anybody's terms. So what got you into flying? Um, well, it was when I was working in Australia, really. Um, I was aware of flying because I knew Dad had been a pilot, but I thought you had to be clever. And <clears throat> I was madly into horses. That was my life. And um, when I was in Australia, I became aware my boss had his own airplane that didn't live on the property, but he would call up his private pilot and fly up to the Northern Territory and things like that. And just the association there made me think, oh, maybe I could do that because his was a private pilot. And um, so that, that, that's what gave me the idea. And I couldn't wait to get home after two and a half years and tell Dad that finally we had something in common because he didn't go with horses much. And he poured cold water all over it, so I, I was so disappointed. I rang my boss in Australia. Well, he, he didn't make trunk calls in those days unless there was a death in the family. <laughs> and I must have mentioned something to him, and in the end he said, oh, how's your flying going, coming along? And I, oh, and I said what Dad had said. How he said, oh, well, my opinion of you has gone. So I thought, oh. And this guy was a double gold medalist in three-day eventing for Australia. And yeah. one thing and another, <clears throat> he had a, probably Australia's greatest horseman, I should think, so ever. Um, so I thought, well, actually, the hell with it. It's my money. It's my life. I've been making my own decisions for a few years now. The hell with it. I'll go and have a trial flight. Dad doesn't need to know. And I fell in love with it. So um, went from there, really. And in the end, Dad was quite proud, and I said to my favourite aunt years later, Auntie Zena, oh, yeah. why was Dad so anti-me learning to fly? And she just looked at me and said, he was worried about you. Never occurred to me. Yeah. Because he'd, in the war years, instructing, he'd seen some horrible things even instructing, so, but not being one to show any kind of emotion, I mean, it never, Yeah. well... He was trying to protect you. Yeah, but yeah. I didn't realize. I just thought he was being negative. <laughs> <laughs> so where did you learn to fly? Here, Bridge Bar. Oh, really? And, and what were you flying? Well, the Cub was $18 an hour. I didn't know anything about airplanes, and I said to the second instructor, can I learn in the Cub? Well, he poured cold water over that because it was harder for the instructor, and I had the money saved, so I went with the Cherokee which was a little bit more expensive. When I got my PPL, I instantly went to the Cub and wished I'd done all my training in it. And, um, yeah, so. So you went transitioned to the Cub and the tail wheel addiction was born. <laughs> yep. 
and then I sold everything I had. And I'd been working full time while I was doing my training, and it was worked in really well. Um, and it wasn't far away. And then I went to England, and um, sort of did a bit of flying over there, which was so expensive. Mm. But every time I did some overtime, I'd think, oh, that's an extra ten minutes flying. <laughs> so <laughs> instead of instead of doing lots of things that travelling people do, it was a I can do a little bit more flying over there. It is it is something that I've noticed is once you start flying, everything becomes, well, if I spend the money on that, that's two hours of flying. Mm. I th I'd rather go flying. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So how long were you in the UK for and where were you flying there? Well, I started off flying at Biggin Hill yeah. and for a brand new PPL, I can't believe how brave I was, really. But um, while doing that, I came across a, an airfield in Kent, head corner, a grass airfield, quite quiet, and that suited me much better. So I managed to get myself a job there the next season working on the farm, got involved with flying robins and things like that there. So you were flying over in the UK for a year or two or multiple years? Uh, well, I ended up there quite legally, I might say. I ended up there for seven years. I sort of did get involved with somebody who part-owned his own um, Robin, so flew that quite a bit. Really nice aircraft. Mm. And then when I came home, I got involved with Tiger Moth's boyfriend um, in New Zealand, owned his own and was rather irreverent, I guess you might say, the most lovely guy, but he was no instructor. He just owned his own airplane and let me fly it. You know, we'd fly together and he would fly one leg, I'd fly another, and then he just used to let me fly it off his farm strip. Like, he must have been crazy. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I just can't believe the opportunity yeah. I got. You're flying tiger moths <laughs> in the North Island, but also going to the South Island for competitions. Well, he ended up having to sell his tiger. Then I sort of had to scrounge renting uh, one or two others um, as they came available. And um, they'll never let me pay for anything. But you know, every now and again, I'd be able to buy a 44-gallon drum of white spirits, which is what we ran them on in those days. Wow. But, but yeah, there was a helicopter guy here who had a, his father had restored a tiger, but he was not interested. So um, I was able to rent that, and um, that's what I took down south. And that was where you met Jerry, and things progressed from there. And Well, know, after a long time, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah quite some time. <laughs> yeah. Him being based overseas, coming back, and so on. But eventually, <laughs> you're, you're here in, in the, uh, the hangar home, mm -hmm. the dream of many of us who fly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you've got quite a bit of space here, and of course, the pride of place in the hangar, is your father's gypsy moth. Yeah, that's right. It's sort of pretty surreal, really. I know, because, I mean, we'll come to the details of his flight down from the UK to here, and, and then it was impressed, and then it was restored, and then you folks managed to get it, as Jerry was telling us earlier. So you've got your father's gypsy moth, a 1930s aircraft, here in the hangar. 1929. Well, there you go. <laughs> that's right, he flew down here in the 30s. So yeah. And you've got a huge collection of memorabilia from his flight and his adventures and his early days here at Bridge Par that I've been fortunate to have a look at. Absolutely amazing, the maps and everything. Was it because your father was a collector, did you realise the heritage value of all that memorabilia later on? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and it's, um, <clears throat> it's a huge concern to me as to what to do with it when, mm. I'm not a when we're not around. 
because it's dad like me hate, hated fl- throwing anything out. And I don't know how where he put it all because <laughs> there wasn't much room in the luggage locker. But you know, sort of receipts and hotel and I don't know Rajasthan or Bangkok or somewhere like that. Got all those and fuel receipts and and the invitation for the uh, Wentworth, I believe. Yes, that's Sydney, right for the Iva. That's amazing, and a letter from Nancy Bird. Yeah, yeah, it's incredible. Let's talk about his flight. What what inspired him to fly to Australia from the UK? I think as a boy, he um, I've got one of his old scrapbooks, and there's ships and things like that, and odd, funny old aeroplanes. Well, they weren't old then. He obviously had an interest in aviation because he subscribed to the Airplane Monthly, I think, mm-hmm. from England, and. Um, of course, it took months to ever get here. And of course, like all people, he read a lot. And I think he read a lot of Kipling. And he got his um, private license at Bridge Par, probably the other field, then decided he'd like to get in the RAF. And he'd been, he'd, he'd got a legacy from, you know, family legacy. And um, so he and a friend went to England to try and get in the RAF. Mum said the Kiwis were not treated very well, mm. or the colonials weren't. Um, anyway, they did manage to get in, and Dad felt the cold a lot. And I think through his reading of Kipling, I think he got this idea of flying in somewhere warm like India or Africa, because you know the sun never set yeah. over the British Empire. <laughs> and um, of course, here were these horrible, horrible conditions over there, and pea soup fogs, and Way worse than it is now, I think, because you don't get pea soup fogs, really. No. And just cold and miserable and a few other things. And he never wrote much or said much, but after he died, I found in his diary an entry saying, think I'll fail final exams, can do better. And another page, think we'll buy a moth and fly to fly home, basically. Wow. And he must have said something to his mother because I found a letter from her to another brother saying, Stan says he wants to fly back. I don't know whether he means commercially or himself. So no big drama. And in those days, there was so much support and encouragement from the authorities to do this sort of thing. Nobody said you couldn't. Well, there was the MacArthur Robertson. <clears throat> exactly. Yeah, the big race going on. There was... Um, a number of people, uh, Hinkler had flown solo. and Oh, yeah, he, he was not the first by any stretch. Yeah. Um, but that established that it was not, doable. not a weird thing to do. Yeah, and of course Britain was doing anything to encourage its empire to expand and all the rest of it, as I say, rightly or wrongly. So he obviously did a lot of research and um, bought a, a used moth from Brian Lewis of London it had uh, been all around Europe, had been to North Africa, Casablanca, it had been to Rangoon already. Wow. So it's a very well-traveled moth. <laughs> yeah, I said to him, gosh, Dad, your airplane knew its way around the world. He said, yeah, that's one of the reasons I bought her. <laughs> some, some wealthy lady had owned her and had a swashbuckling pilot to fly her around. And I said to Dad once, I never talked about these sorts of things, but I said, do you think Rupert Belville was Miss, Mrs. Bailey's um, boyfriend? Or was it Mrs. Montague? I can't quite remember. And Dad said, 
Well, it would have been a, a waste if he wasn't. <laughs> that was the nearest we ever got to talking about anything like that. <laughs> oh, that's gold. <laughs> so he had a, um, a long-range tank put in the front, an extra 40 gallons in the front cockpit, an extra gallon of oil, did some test flying because it was all fed in. And um, the boarding house he was living in down Brompton Road, I think, in London, he never told anyone except his good friend, and so he went out to the airport. John took him out to Heston, and Dad never went back with him, and their mates sort of said to John, well, where's Stan? <laughs> John said, oh, he's just started off to fly back, fly to Sydney. Of course, they didn't believe him. <laughs> yeah, funny. I mean, funny that. It's like, oh, no, he's just going around the block or something. He'll be back soon, yeah. Yeah. And he, Dad said that he thought that um, – Oh, he might get as far as India or something. He wasn't that experienced. He put it in a box, get it back home in a box. Mm. He was quite, you know, realistic about his chances, but he actually doubled his solo flight time by the time he got to Sydney. <laughs> wow, because it would have been multiple pops. You've got them on the side of the aircraft. Mm. He um, went through, what is it, looks like about 30? Oh, over 40. Over yeah. 40, okay. Mm. There's a lot of names painted on the side of that yeah. aircraft. Well, this aircraft was used for the TV1 um, film called Gene, obviously oh. about Gene Batten. Mm -hmm. And the producers <clears throat> were sensible enough to uh, realize the difference between a tiger and a gypsy. So they called me up and asked if it would be possible to use this aircraft, <clears throat> which we agreed to because we know how silly it would have been to have had a tiger moth yeah, with Gene exactly. Batten. Yeah. But then we had engine problems and it was all absolutely to the last minute mm -hmm. that we actually, with help from our great friend John Pheasant, that we actually managed to get the aeroplane there in time to, to do the Beautiful. flying flying for it, yeah. So how, how long did it take your father to get down here? How many, how many days, months, et cetera? Um, it was about six weeks. He said he was not in a hurry. His first major stop was in Paris. They took his logbooks away because the weather was foul. He said he wouldn't have been stupid enough to fly anyway. That was the only place where they wouldn't speak English. So he was held up for four days there. And then just after Singapore, he got malaria. So he was held up for 10 days recovering from malaria. Did that come and cause problems for him later in his life? And I don't know, I don't think so, but he used to take quinine tablets mm. um, and eventually his doctor wouldn't give him any, so he had to, he would go to the vet. To <laughs> Where there's a will, there's a way. Yeah, that's right, just to stave any possibility of it off. Okay. Mm. So after he recovered in Singapore? Well, then it was flying down through Indonesia and, you know, the big – um, Achilles' heel of all those early flyers was the Timor Sea mm. from Surabaya to Darwin, of course. And that was interesting because that was about an eight-hour flight, eight-and-a-half-hour flight over water, no islands until nearly Australia. And he was two-and-a-half hours into the flight. His navigation was two compasses, and he realized that the two compasses had been reading differently. Which and one's he, right? <laughs> yeah, so... I, I asked Jerry, how on earth could he have worked out which one was correct? Because it was not the one that he took a punt. And the one that he hadn't been flying on, he reckoned was correct. 
And Jerry said, well, he probably knew where the sun should be at a certain time of the day. So he did, I guess it's the one in 60, I don't know, but he said they were not trained in the Air Force to do this, you know, 20 minutes at right angles, Mm -hmm. 10 minutes, 20 minutes, until he reckoned that he had worked out how long he'd been on that other track for. I don't know how. My mind would just go to a mush. Yeah. And uh, eventually managed Darwin. Wow. <laughs> and I, I believe in Darwin, he got some uh, sagely advice from the old timers there. Yeah. they In the bar that night, a couple of old bush pilots said, well, Sonny, don't go chasing compass courses. And uh, he thought, well, they were still alive and they must have known what they were talking about. A couple of English guys obviously thought, oh, what the hell would they know? Never seen again. <clears throat> so I guess it was the ore and the soil that messed with the compass. Cause, mm. And um, he said that was by far the hardest navigation. That blows my mind because you've just done this big crossing of nothing but water and now you're over <clears throat> land. But I believe the difficulty related to the maps. Well, yeah, the map would show a road, but you couldn't see it because it was blown over by sand and dirt and it would show rivers or streams, but they were all dried up and they were sort of indentations, but all over the place and might show a town. But if you're lucky, it was a woolshed with a <laughs> name on it or, you know, just a, a small group of um, buildings in the middle of absolutely nowhere and not being able to follow a compass course that just blows my mind mm. because I've flown over just about the whole width of Australia in a, I don't know, let's say a triple seven with clear daylight, <clears throat> no clouds, and looked down and a lot of that was over territory further north where he would have been and just beggar's belief yeah. um, how those people, you know, the genes of this world and others, how they navigate, how they worked it out. Because there was nothing. There it was, was just big empty. Thousands of miles of nothing. Yeah. Oh, one time he, he did two out landings in his logbook. One he asked where he was. And the other one, Duchess, was actually where he wanted to be anyway. <laughs> <laughs> a happy coincidence. <clears throat> yeah. So eventually he made it to Sydney, and you've got photos of the aircraft being towed through Sydney to make it to the docks to mm-hmm. be shipped to New Zealand. Mm-hmm. How long did he stay in <clears throat> Sydney? Oh, just a few days, okay. I think. Yeah, and just enough time to get the airplane ready for shipping. And and he, in the logbook too, it says that there were – Puffs of smoke coming from number two cylinder as he was coming into Sydney to mascot. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully they were able to check it out for him. Yeah. One cylinder had been changed in India. He'd taken a spare cylinder and cylinder head. So he shipped it across to New Zealand. Did he land in Auckland or Mm -hmm. yeah? And then flew it down to here. Mm -hmm. Then it was here until the war. Yep. Well, Jan White, thank you so much for uh, the time to chat and for coming on the show. Thanks, Grant. It's been scary. (laughs) (laughs) You've done great. (laughs) You might think that in the Australian Defence Force, you'll only ever have the one job. But take a closer look at how it invests in your career and you'll find training for new roles as well as gain professional, tertiary and trade qualifications. Learn more at adfcareers.gov.au. Keeping up to date with the latest news is a huge part of our daily lives. Now you can have news on demand with the Australian Independent Radio News app. News and sport in your pocket whenever you want it. 
Wherever you are in the world, if you call Australia home, you can stay in touch with the Air News app. Download it now for news on the go. This is Air News. This is Air News. This is Air News. This is Air News. Australian Independent Radio News. Imagine if you were very sick, feeling so bad you could hardly get out of bed. But you had to get up and drive 600 kilometres to hospital for treatment. You'd be eternally grateful for Angel Flight, whose pilots fly them there free of charge. So please, support the work of Angel Flight or get involved as a volunteer pilot or driver. Log on to angelflight.org.au and help bring relief to people who so desperately need some. And welcome back. You're listening to episode 145 of Playing Crazy Down Under. It's our first show for 2024 and it's great to have you with us. Well, in the previous episode, we presented the first of a three-part series which we recorded in 2019 with Steve Paget, OAM, one of Australia's true modern-day aviation pioneers, following his journey into the business and the many twists and turns along the way. This series was recorded for the Airwaves podcast, which we produced for Aviation Trader at the time, and we thank them for allowing us to use this content again here on PCDU. At the end of the last instalment, we'd reached the stage where Steve had set up his well-known charter and sales company, Aeromill Pacific. Let's pick up the story from here. You've moved Aeromill up to Queensland, and that must have been there. Must have been something in the air, and the, and you know, Queensland is the is the home of the big pineapple and the big this and the big everything. And you know, Aeromill really went leaps and bounds, didn't it? Once you moved up there. Yeah. Well, what happened was, apart from it, you know, it was it was a fresh environment and really invigorated both me and my staff. And um, and most of the staff that came up were new, so that was great too. Even though some did come with me, um, but uh, Don Tender was would start at the next phase, which was. He came to me one day and he said, look, Steve, he said, I've been talking about you to ANSET, and ANSET are struggling with their 737 operation in the Maroochydore. Um, what they prefer to do is run into Brisbane and have a feeder from Brisbane to Maroochydore. So I said, oh, that's interesting. Um, tell me more. And he said, well, look, no, I won't tell you more. He said, you go tell your story to ANSET. I'll, I'll tee up the appointment with the people who matter, and they want to talk to you. You go talk to them. So I flew to Melbourne and I went and talked to them. And again, cut a long story short, um, they said to me, look, you know, what we'd like you to do, you're a, you've got Banner Annie's, it's a great aeroplane, why don't you run a Banner Annie service from Brisbane to Maroochydore? <laughs> and uh, I said, well, geez, that means I've got to start an airline. I got to, oh, and they said, yep, yep, and you have to do it very quickly. So again, we have a, I had a young fellow, and and I'll 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 diversify if I may the story a little bit. Um, when I moved up here, I got a call from Bond University, and Bond University said to me, "Look, we've got a young fellow here, very young fellow, who loves aviation. He's very smart. He's got a computer degree, um, but he just wants to be in aviation." And said, "Have knocked him back. Qantas have knocked him back. Everybody in aviation has knocked him back. I've heard you may." be able to help him. And I said, look, I, I don't have a job for a pilot who wants to be a pilot. I don't have a job for a pilot now. I can't help you. And they said, yeah, yeah, but can you advise him at least? He, he'd love, I said, well, if he's prepared to drive to Maroochydore on a Saturday morning, I'll come to the airport and see him. It's in a three hours for him and it's a five minutes for me. Um, so this young fella flew up here, very impressed with him. It's, it's, this relates to Sunshine 
And uh, I was very, very impressed with him. And at that time, just at that time, for for interesting reasons, I bought a business called uh, the Red Baron at Noosa Airport. Now, the Red Baron was an old twin-engine aeroplane with a big rotary engine. and um, Sorry, a a, a, a biplane with a rotary engine. Uh, It was actually an AGCAT, a Grumman AGCAT, with two seats in it for tourism. And I didn't have a pilot for it, so I said to this fellow, I said, I'll tell you what, if you go get yourself a Piper Cub endorsement and if you if you, if you can fly that, and the instructor tells me you can, uh, I'll get you an AGCAT endorsement, and if the instructor tells me you can fly that, um, I'll give you this job flying tourists out of Noosa. But you've got to pay for the Cub endorsement yourself, and, um, and if that doesn't work, bad luck. That's <laughs> cut a long story short. Um, this guy's been with me for 21 years. That's oh, wow. Phil, Laff- Phil Laffer, who's now probably the most senior check and training corporate pilot in the country, um, now running my simulator business. So from that day, he had 300 hours. He's now got 10,000 hours and just a wonderful guy. And he, he's just, um, he's sort of the next generation, if you like. I hope we'll follow me out of this business. But but anyway, so how that, what happened then, because Phil was in me, um, and uh, I said to Phil, now you run an airline. <laughs> well, I'm not going to do that. I said, I'll set it all up. You you do all the, get all the training going. You do it all. Um, so Phil ended up being chief pilot and general manager of Sunshine Express Airline, um, which we ended up flying 10 services a day to to Brisbane and return from Richardor ultimately buying two short 360s. Wow. Um, and, and so we had two short 360s and several bandits. Uh, Phil was the GM, and and we had a hell of a time with that. With, with doing that. I've got to ask you, Steve, uh, just as you, you said, uh, you know, you're going to sit, he said, just casually, I'll set the airline up. That's no small undertaking in any point in time, but I just I'm curious as to how you found the uh, setting that up and dealing with the regulator, which I guess that would have been the Civil Aviation Authority back at that time. That must have been it an was. interesting process. It was, but I've got to say it was a lot easier in those days. Um, there wasn't the red tape and bureaucracy that goes on today. It, it was it, it wasn't easy, but it wasn't um, as long as you did the right thing. A lot of stuff was done by reputation and by experience in other words they've dealt with you for 20 years they know that you're going to do things properly because they did all the all the proper checks and paperwork had to be right but um we ended up starting in a fairly short period of time um and it went very well we ended up running around southeast queensland um and um you know very successfully but of course guess what happened ANSAT went broke yes um yeah so so um, we're sitting here. I got a call one morning to say we're terribly sorry, but Anset went into liquidation today. And I rang my accountant. I said, "How much do Anset owe us?" And they owed us seven hundred thousand dollars, which which was a lot of money to me and a lot of money to us and all of us. And of course, a business that we put a lot into was suddenly zero, um, and everything just got shut down. And uh, we did manage to get some money out of that. Seven hundred thousand, and she liquidated, but was it all? And it really set us back quite a bit. Yeah. But interesting enough, the same day I got a call from Qantas. <laughs> Qantas said, um, 
you've got a good little operation there. We'd like to take it over, not take it over. We'd like you to work for us, uh, running, doing this, what you've been doing for ANSET. And I said, that's great. I'm, you know, I'm so excited. And uh, I said, good, under the same terms? I said, no. Nah. They said, that's what sent ANSET broke, which it did. But um, they, they did a pretty good job of screwing us down to a very tight deal. <laughs> but we continued on with that for uh, for some time. Uh, but in the end, we, unfortunately, we did too good a job and they ended up taking it over themselves uh, in a very, 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 um, very nice way. But in essence, they decided that now the traffic was good enough that they could they could uh, justify their own aeroplanes on the routes. It's often said that of adversity con- comes opportunity, doesn't it? And that's, that's certainly a story of that. Exactly. But it did coincide with an interesting sideline that is we ha- we were operating metros in the end along with the bandits and shorts on some of the longer routes and uh, we had one metro in brisbane we got we, we ended up getting aeroplane serviced in brisbane because that's where the the uh, most of them are based and uh, unfortunately uh, an engineer decided to spray some uh, pfc uh into the throttle quadrant and immediately pushed the throttles forward, which blew the cockpit pieces, uh, the, blew the uh, blew the bulkhead to the rear of the aeroplane and left the poor engine air sitting in just a seat with first eardrum, uninjured otherwise. But we decided that that was a message and uh, metros we found were getting old and, and, um, and maintenance intensive and we said, look, this is Qantas and all this, that's just, that's just terminate the whole lot um it's been a great period and, and move on um yeah. which, which we did one of the questions is so you've got the sunshine express you've done some amazing stuff there with anset and Qantas, but sunshine express that wasn't the first airline you'd been involved in was it no um back in back in in the sydney days um when we we're selling banner annies we set up an airline uh called um uh, oh great lakes airlines it was great lakes airlines or air great lakes as it turned out to be, and operating a bandit from Sydney to um, Foster, and we landed on the island. So that and that was done in conjunction with Davy Airlines, Bill Davy from Dubbo, uh, which was owned by a grazier uh, from Western New South Wales, who turned out to be a very good friend, or it resulted in being a very good friend of mine, and um, was a shareholder in in Aramore for a short period. But yeah, Air Great Lakes was a banded operation. It was a lot of fun again because it flew into the island and we, we had a boat that ran from the airport to the mainland. And uh, so it was a scenic trip for passengers as well as an airline service. <laughs> um, but uh, that, that actually was good because it did give us the chance to uh, get a bit experienced about airline operations before we ended up eventually, of course, going to um, Sunshine Express. Now I understand you've you've also had some experience helping out with establishing airlines in the Asia Pacific area and doing some work with charter and so on in the U.S. Yeah, well, there's two stories there. I'll I'll go um, probably the the interesting story in Asia was because I was the Embraer dealer up there. I got to know quite a few people, and there's a company that's that uh, was owned by a good a doctor in Bangkok, and they had a a pipe of Navajo. They used to fly for the CIA, believe it or not. <laughs> and um, uh, but they wanted to start an airline, and um, so I got talking to them. They said, "Look, 
this banner anti would be a good airline, a good replacement for the Navajo. And I said, yeah, but it's not ideal for Asia because, you know, you've got, you know, it's hot and humid and, and all that sort of stuff. They said, no, no, we want to give it a try. Um, and it's not pressurised, that was the main reason. But I said, they want to try it. And they said, can you lease us an aeroplane? So, again, cut a long story short, I painted one of my aeroplanes. And um, in their colours, we trained their flight attendants, we trained their pilots. I flew it with all my family and friends, all 15 of us, I think, um, <laughs> from here to Bangkok uh, as a sort of a trip, um, which turned out to be a nightmare because we've got some very, very bad winds on the way to Western Australia, and then they have to fly at 15,000 feet, which, of course, wasn't very comfortable for the passengers. Hmm. And uh, and the, guy, the, the pilots had loads of fresh meat on board. Anyway, long story, eventually, of course, did get there safely. Um, it was a ferry flight. It wasn't a commercial flight. And um, anyway, that airline turned out to be Bangkok Airways. Oh, wow. Which is, which is now one of the largest airlines in Southeast Asia. And um, it wasn't for that single banner ante that they operated on its own for one year with our help. That's what actually kick-started them in, into the into bigger and brighter airlines, and I've still got yeah. to welcome that out from the fellow called Doctor Prevert, who is the owner and chairman of the airline, because uh, of, the, of the beginnings that we helped them establish. That's uh, fantastic. Yeah, the other story is, which is an interesting story, is is um, uh, Austin Aero. Uh, when I started buying aeroplanes and selling aeroplanes, I established a great friendship with a, a Texan fellow in Austin, Texas. Uh, I met him when I was buying a secondhand banner anti from over there at one point. We became firm friends, and um, he worked out of, in, interesting enough, Robert Mueller Airport has become famous recently. Uh, Robert Mueller was the uh, airport for Austin in those days, and there was a FBO there that he had his base in that was like five big hangars. It was over 25 acres. It had a huge fuel farm that fueled Continental, Southwest Airlines, um, American. It was a big fuel, but there was a huge risk uh, that the government were going to move the airport within five years to another site, but they may not either. So Austin Aero came up for sale by tender. And the reason it was up for sale by tender is was the fellow who owned it was Governor Connolly, who, of course, was with President uh, President um, Kennedy when he was shot. And um, uh, so he owned it, and then he went broke, and it was bought by somebody else, a bank, in fact. He went broke, and then they ended up being owned by the U.S. government. So to cut a long story short again, we put a joke tender in, which we put together in one afternoon, and won it. <laughs> um, now I, I, I've got to, I, won't, I won't tell you how much we put the tender in for but it wasn't a lot of money I was just thinking we had a hope in Hades to run it because the result could have been worse than spending the initial money because this business employed 25 Americans uh, all wanting to keep their jobs uh, and we had no idea how to run a FBO uh, with a fuel farm and contracts with eight major American airlines. Anyway, we did. We bought it. Uh, we said, here we go. This will be this will be a challenge. It'll be a lot of fun. I was president of the company. Brad was my um, 
associate and partner. Um, and um, Brad Lee, his name is, just a wonderful guy and still is my very best friend. Um, and he, um, so he got it there. I went over there quite a bit to help run it. But unfortunately, on the first day, after we bought it and paid the um, the U.S. government for it, um, it had been raining for a week in Austin. And Austin is actually based on an aquifer, which means the water table is only 10 feet below the surface. Um, so um, it rained and rained and rained and rained and rained. And we're, right. having a, we're having a get-start party in the terminal. And it was a beautiful terminal. It was, you know, it was um, quite a it's typical of American terminals you see today. Um, and um, this, the gentleman who ran it was, a, was um, a very tall fellow and lovely bloke, and he ran the whole fuel activity, came running in with very bright eyes saying, the fuel farm's fuel farm, the fuel farm. We raced out and had a look, and it was being – Having had remedial work done by the U.S. government as part of our deal, and unfortunately, the tanks, the fuel tanks, were coming up out of the ground like submarines. Oh, no. So they were turning vertically and coming up vertically out of the ground with thousands of gallons of jet fuel flowing out of them, unfortunately, towards a little creek which ran down from the from the property. So the day we bought that thing was the day we almost lost it in that we didn't have any fuel. So we couldn't. Yeah. Next day, we had to fuel all these airline aeroplanes with no fuel. So our biggest con- our biggest contract was with um, with Southwest Airlines, who, as you know, has got over 900 737s. And um, it didn't in those days, of course. Um, and the president was a fellow called Herb Kelleher. He became very famous and wrote very a number famous. of books. Yeah. And I had to yeah. ring him, explain to him that we're going to be out of business. And he said, well, why can't you use a fuel from your competitor across the runway? I said, he won't sell it to us. We'd already tried that. He said, he won't sell it to us because, of course, he thinks he'll get your contract and everyone else's contract because we'll be out of business. And Herb said, no, nah, that's not the way we were. Within two days, he had tanks in there, no cost to us, full of fuel. To keep us going. That's From an inter- then on, we build a brand new fuel farm. That's an interesting. Yeah. That's an interesting contrast, isn't it, uh, Steve? Um, in my history, as I did the bulk of my flying training in the United States, and I, I find the attitude there to be quite different. And that story of Herb Kelleher there really says a lot about not just that man personally, but I find that attitude over there in the US. How did you find that experience over there compared to here in Australia? Oh, wonderful! I mean, the best part about it. I mean. They do things there we can't do. Firstly, the, as you know and you've experienced, it's a whole friendly environment. Aviation is just a day-to-day business. Um, you can drive onto an airport. You can drive up to an to a airplane. You can unload your stuff. There's hangars everywhere. There's airports everywhere. It's a day-to-day operation. Nothing spectacular. Here it's treated as something that nobody really wants, especially the government and so on, and we're, and we're annoyance. Uh, other than the airlines, and um, hopefully one day that'll change, and we've been trying to do that, but it's a it's a hard long road to to to, to run. But um, that's you're exactly right. Uh, we found it fantastic dealing with people. Um, we loved the opera. People would pull up in their jets and they'd get out, and you know everyone was polite. And um, we had two, three presidents come through because the Bushes, of course, lived in Texas. 
they came mm. through our operation. Um, uh, where Clint Eastwood used to make films there and came in in his helicopter. Um, so, yeah, look, it was one of the most enjoyable times of my career because of what you just said. It's it, it's just wonderful to be involved in aviation at its best. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, I, I, I just, I've, just, I've just come back from a trip over there and done some flying again, and uh, it just it brings it back to me every time, you know, Steve, just sidetracking here, I guess, a little bit. But it's a, it's a, it's a pet topic of mine is, is I really wish we could bring some of that positivity about aviation from there over here. I don't know how we do it. Yeah, the biggest problem we've got, of course, is that we just haven't got the population nor the air, or airports, you know, within uh, remote populations. So if we had an equivalent of Austin, Texas, in the middle of Australia, and a lot of other all these smaller uh, towns, we'd have airports at every one of them, and it would grow itself. But unfortunately, if you go out to a remote airport, when I say a remote airport, an airport that's even got to see a runway, you've got to climb over the fence to get to a to your transport. I mean, there yeah. there is just no facilities. Getting fuels is probable. We've got the best airline services in the world operating on the east coast. So it's very difficult to sell corporate aeroplanes these days when it's such a wonderful service in great new aeroplanes at a reasonable cost. Why would people buy corporate aeroplanes? So mm. uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's really just the base we've got is not big enough um, to create that sort of thing. If it was big enough, I'm sure the very enthusiastic, passionate people in aviation would make that happen. And there we go, Grant. I'll tell you what, I'm still on that hobby horse about uh, making GAE a bit more fun over here in this part of the world. Uh, I am a bit biased, and people who are new to the show might not realise, but I actually did the bulk of my training in the United States, and uh, anyone who's flown over there knows that the culture there is in GA is quite often a lot different to here, and, um, you know, oftentimes, and I'm sad to say, but it's a bit more positive and a bit more can-do over there at times. But uh, hearing Steve Padgett there talk about great airline service, Grant, uh, of course, that was recorded just before the pandemic years, and uh, I think I think uh, I wonder what he'd say these days. They've, they've been struggling a little bit, the airlines, I must say. Well, they're a bit behind the eight ball because the demand has come back way faster than any of their staff, uh, many, of, <laughs> many of whom have said, not working for you lot anymore, and they've left the airline industry entirely. Yeah, it's been good for us in railways. We've actually picked up a lot of ex-airline stuff, and <laughs> so far we've kept most of them, so that's a good thing for us. But yeah, Oh, my. Uh, maybe we're going back to the Halcyon era of, uh, you know, um, interstate rail travel. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? How does that jingle yeah. go? Trains good, planes bad? Something like that, mate, something like that, yeah. <laughs> Anyhow, so uh, that's a really great series. We've got one more instalment of that to go with Steve Paget, which we might hold off for a couple of episodes. But uh, yeah, that was just a really uh, you know great story to tell, and uh, you know something that might be interesting to pick up on now, uh, all these years later, is uh, what's happened with the lights and where that's all going. Because you know there's been a lot of news around that, and uh, their proposed acquisition by Qantas, and was it going to happen? Wasn't it going to happen? All that sort of stuff. So, uh, but again, of course, that interview was recorded long before any of those shenanigans happened. So. You know, yep. lots, lot, a lot of water under the bridge since then, but uh, still one of those evergreen interviews that I really enjoyed uh, producing. It was great. Really good to chat with Steve. And, uh, yeah, hoping to uh, have a chat with him again in the not-too-distant future. But, well, we'll believe that when it happens, and we'll play it for you as soon as we've got it. Well, that's everything we have for you on this episode of Playing Crazy Down Under. Thanks very much for joining us, uh, Grant. Of course, uh, the email address, if anybody wants to get in touch with us, which we always encourage, is contact at playingcrazydownunder.com. 
contact. You know, Grant, we could have caught a clear prop at playing Crazy Town. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty That's pretty good. I like that. But uh, please do reach out, folks. We love receiving the emails. Haven't received too many at the moment, but uh, always up for, for an email. And uh, if we start getting more emails and you know engagement, we might actually go back to what we used to do in the old days and maybe organize some comps or some meetups or things like that. Who knows? Yeah, it'd be great fun. It's uh, you know getting the show back in uh, into the ether and into the uh, the podcast world was a big decision for us last year. We're pretty happy with the way the show went last year, and we really would like to uh, continue to regrow it in 2024. So uh, let's make that all happen. This is a community. It's not just about me and Grant. It's it's a community, and uh, you know we'd really like to reestablish that again because you know we had a great lot of fun doing that back in the day, and uh, you know well I'm always up for some more fun. Oh, definitely. I'm definitely up for fun. Anyhow, we're going to sign it off here. Steve Vischer and Grant McHeron wishing you very safe flying, folks. And until we talk to you again, have fun. Find show notes for this episode along with our contact details and a full back catalogue of shows at plainecrazydownunder.com. Drop us a line anytime with feedback, story suggestions or advertising inquiries. We'd love to hear from you. Title music is You Name It by Brian Simpson. Plain Crazy Down Under is a Southern Skies media production. Southern Skies Media.